Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Thank you. Uh, thank you all for coming out. Uh, it's really a pleasure to be here on this beautiful campus in this beautiful facility. Um, I hope uh, that I'll say enough that might be of interest that maybe we could get a discussion going first with this amazing set of panelists, which it's a great honor to uh, be on the same stage with them, but also with those of you in the audience, uh, particularly those of you who are students, because as you'll see, the focus of this presentation, I hope, is something that might be useful about your future. Uh, so, uh, I'm a law professor, so we're going to start with a little game, but it's not a law professor's game. I don't know how many people watch Sesame Street when they were young or know Sesame Street. Sesame Street is a children's TV show with big puppets and whatnot. It's been on for uh, public television for probably 30 uh, or 40 years. And they always play this little game, which is called, which one of these things is not like the other? And it's a way in which they teach uh, kids about uh, animals and counting and fruit. And they show things and they say, which one of these things is not like the other? So we're going to play this little game here, only it's going to be a little bit about what's happening in the world today involving law. So first, Crowd Defend. CrowdDefend is an online platform that allows individuals, organizations, and businesses to solicit crowdfunding for socially motivated legal cases. Next, DYI Nigeria is a one-stop online portal for registration, legal needs, and project managements for small businesses in Nigeria. Next, this is one of my favorites. Integrity Idol. It's a social media competition to recognize honest civil servants in Nepal, Pakistan, and Liberia. Apparently, it's a tough competition. Uh, 5.0. It's an app to allow citizens to rate, review, and track interactions with police with results made available at no charge to community activists, media, and law enforcement. Stand-in. This is another one of my favorites. Stand-in is an app that helps lawyers find substitutes who can stand in for them in court appearances that they can't make. It's literally an app in your phone like Uber. Only instead of cars circling around NYU Abu Dhabi campus, there are little icons of lawyers circling around the courthouse in a jurisdiction. So let's say you're doing something in Abu Dhabi and you have also a motion in Dubai. You can click on the icon. It'll show you who the lawyer is. It'll tell you what their qualifications are. And you click on it again and you can contact the lawyer and it'll show you how much they charge. And you can pay them to stand up for you, to appear for you in court when you can't make it from Abu Dhabi to Dubai because of traffic. Okay, here's an article in a recent lawyer magazine. Computer versus lawyers. Firm leaders expect computers to win. That was the headline. And here was uh, kind of the meat. 40, they did a survey of managing partners of law firms. 47% of managing partners think AI will soon replace paralegals. 
and 50, AI meaning artificial intelligence, and 50% think they will eventually uh, replace first-year associates, for those of you who are thinking about doing such a job. Uh, Here's another headline. Backed by Burford's Millions, Housefield stakes a claim in Germany. Burford is the world's largest third-party litigation financing organization. For those of you who don't know, you can actually, companies invest in lawsuits by loaning money to uh, the litigants in in exchange for a financial return. Many of you might think, isn't that illegal or unethical? Maybe both, but it's happening. This third-party litigation financing company is starting a law firm. It's funding the starting of a law firm, a UK law firm moving to Germany, whose sole purpose will be to underwrite claims against German companies, uh, I'm sorry, to allow German companies to sue other companies for violations of EU competition law, for those of you who teach competition law. Uh, Deloitte. Everybody know them. They're one of the big four accounting firms. We still foolishly call them accounting firms. They have, their accounting has been a lost leader for many years. Deloitte has bought, in the recent years, ADT Legal and Conduit Law, which are the two biggest electronic discovery companies in Canada. And they have also have the largest partnership with Kira Systems, which is the largest artificial intelligence, uh, is the largest company selling artificial intelligence about law. The American Bar Association, our regulatory organization, our meeting in the United States, has now licensed something called limited liability legal technicians. Think nurse practitioners. These are people who are not lawyers, but could perform some limited number of legal services without the supervision of a lawyer. And finally, Bitland. Bitland is creating a blockchain network to store land registration claims in Ghana to resolve and settle disputes and protect small landowners from fraud and corruption. Okay, just take a breath, all right? The question is, Which one of these things is not like the others? Here's the law professor answer. None of them and all of them. Isn't that what they tell you in law school when you talk? They don't give you a straight answer. What do I mean? Well, they're all the same because they are trying to bring innovation and innovation thinking to the legal profession. And they're also all the same because not one of those things that I put on the board is a law firm or a traditional legal service provider. And yet, they're all providing some form of legal services targeted to different parts of the market and are likely to encounter different regulatory issues. That, for the students in the room, this is your world, okay? And perhaps most tellingly, all of those things came across my desk in the last few months. All right, there's a lot of talk about legal startups, at least in my country, and maybe here in uh, Dubai and Abu Dhabi and other places in the UAE. And including there are being books that have been written about robot lawyers and about how artificial intelligence is going to replace the legal profession. 
there's a person called Richard Susskind. Some of you may know he's a very prominent academic in the UK associated with Oxford. Uh, not as distinguished as our speaker from Oxford, but, you know, associated with Oxford. And uh, he's written a very charming book called The End of Lawyers, in which the argument is that technology and artificial intelligence is going to replace lawyers. Now, he always reminds me that there's a question mark at the end of the title. So for those of you still in school, maybe there's hope for you, okay? Uh, Lots of talk about this disruption. My view is that talk is both under and over-inclusive. It's under-inclusive because it acts as though lawyers are at the center of the universe and all the changes that are happening that I just talked about are starting with the legal profession. But of course, we know this is not true, that what's happening is a manifestation of big, large-scale forces that are transforming our world, like the globalization of economic activity and the movement of that activity from the traditional centers in the North and the West to the new emerging economies in the South and East, of which obviously NYU Abu Dhabi is a prime example. That's why NYU is here or the incredible rise in the speed and the sophistication of information technology. So uh, my favorite example, like all of you, I carry around one of these things, okay? Last year, 2017, was the 10th year anniversary of the iPhone. There was no smartphone before 2007. I remember the first time I ever saw a commercial for the iPhone and you could touch it and you could get your email. It was like a miracle. Okay, now who can imagine their life without this today? You might want to imagine your life without it, but you can't. Okay, now ask yourself this question. What's going to be here 10 years from now that you can't imagine living without that you can't even imagine today? That's Moore's law. That's the space, the the speed of information technology. Finally, this last point uh, is a little academic-y, but I'm an academic. I get paid to talk this way, and I'm talking to some academics. I call it the blurring together of traditional categories of organization and thought. It's just a fancy way of saying that things we used to think of as being all separate and distinct are now much more intertwined, you know, global and local, or public and private, or how about this one, law and business. When I went to law school, when John went to law school, these were taught as if these were completely separate, independent domains. In fact, law was the antithesis of business. It was a noble profession. Well, it still is a noble profession, but no one who practices law or has anything to do with law doesn't also understand it's an incredibly intense, globally competitive business, okay? The world is becoming much more intertwined, okay? On the other hand, all this talk about disruption and robot lawyers and the end of lawyers overstates the extent to which law will or should change, at least in the foreseeable future. Okay, maybe they're all going to be robot lawyers in the distant future, but in the distant future, we're all dead. Okay, in the foreseeable future, law is a human capital business. And in fact, many of the legal startups that have started in the last four or five years have either been bought or failed. So uh, Ravel Law was a very important legal startup. It just got bought by LexisNexis, which is one of the most established law technology companies of the world. And here's the most important thing. Law is not only a private service, it's also a public good. 
that should not be completely deregulated. If we don't actually think the taxi cab market should be completely deregulated after the things that are happening with Uber, why in the world would we think the legal market should? So the complexity of the future of law is it's going to be at the intersection between these big forces of change and also forces that push for stability. And that's because we're entering into a new world, okay, in which there's a new economy that is rapidly taking shape. And it's being driven by a bunch of things you all know about. First, since I know there's some economists in the room here, there's been a huge reduction everywhere in what the economists would call information asymmetry between buyers and sellers, okay? Which is just a fancy way of saying that buyers are way smarter about what they want, when they want it, and how they want it. And they can take things that the seller used to have all nicely bundled together for the benefit of the seller and to unbundle those things and to spread them across an increasingly global supply chain. The example I like to give here is think of the way, for those of you of a certain age, uh, you used to buy music compared to the way the students at NYU Abu Dhabi buy music today. We used to have to go to something called the record store. Anybody remember that? These big giant places like Tower, HMV, you know, and we could only buy what was in the record store. And we could only buy it the way the record company wanted to sell it which was all nicely put together in a beautiful, long-playing 33-and-a-third LP uh, with, you know, beautiful cover art, 17 songs on it, you know. And even when I was a kid, it would cost like $3.50, which is like, I don't know, $55 in today's money. And we would rush down to the record store and buy that album because we wanted what? What did we really want? Yeah, the one song they were playing on the radio. Now, to the extent that these students buy music at all, pause for those of you who study intellectual property, you know, <laughs> they've got an iTunes and they pay 99 cents, only now that's out of date. Now they go to Spotify uh, or they go to Pandora and they put together exactly the playlist they want and exactly the order they want for exactly the purpose they want, like working out in that amazing world-class gym you have here or my son's favorite, ignoring his parents. And when they get that playlist exactly the way they want it, they take out their cool little Galaxy S8 phones and they click them together. And if they don't explode, okay, guess what's happened to the music business? It has been totally and completely transformed by this fact that people could get what they want, when they want, how they want. Okay, next. When you don't know anything, you have to buy things on the basis of things that are easy to know, which are often things you can see up front. In other words, the inputs of a product or service. Things like, who made it? What's their reputation? What are their credentials? How many hours did it take to produce? Sound familiar? But the more you know, the less you care about the inputs and the more you care about the outputs as measured by metrics of value to you, okay? So this is what's driving your Amazon ratings, your Yelp rating, your, people are trying to approximate, you know, 
what is the value of this service to me? How am I going to like the output of that service by people who I can identify with? This has been true in the product market for a long time. It's coming to the market for professional services. So John and I are of a certain age in which when we get around and we have friends of ours and we want to talk, you know, we talk about things like, you know, elective heart surgery. You know, you're planning on having it. When are you going to do it? A little bypass here or there. Okay. It used to be if you needed an elective heart surgery, you would go to your local hospital. You'd ask to see the cardiologist. They would send you to the fourth floor. And when you sat in the waiting room, if the cardiologist had a medical degree from a institution that you recognized, you felt comforted. You know what you do today? You go on the internet and you go best heart docs in the world. And you can look up every doctor and you can find out where they have privileges and how many bypass operations they've done. What's the mortality rate? How many times have they been sued? What's their customer satisfaction ratio? And most importantly, what does it cost? And when you do that, this is a true story, Shweta, up, you will find that there's a hospital in Bangalore, India, that has as good a success rate for many kinds of elective heart surgery as Mass General Hospital, the Cleveland Clinic, name your fancy hospital, only it costs 25% as much. And when you find that out, up pops the ad for the travel agent, where you can book your tour to go to Bangalore, which, by the way, with a stop in Agra, you have to see the Taj Mahal, after all, on your way. And then they will book you into the five-star hotel, which is immediately adjacent, connected by a bridge to the uh, hospital. They will get you a personal shopper who will buy you trinkets and saris and things like that you can take home to your relatives. And all of it, including the round-trip airfare, is 50% of what you would pay at Mass General Hospital, the Mayo Clinic, Cleveland Clinic, et cetera. Medical tourism is booming because people can better approximate the outcomes of what they're looking for, not just the input, okay? Last, uh, we still think of competition as if it's kind of, you know, my team versus your team, you know, company A versus company B, the, the Jets versus the Sharks. Any West Side Story fans here? Probably not. Uh, okay, but that's not the way competition works anymore. Ask your friends who study business and commerce. Ask David here. Okay, I just held up the iPhone. Yeah, Apple is in Cupertino, California. They got a few thousand people there. Where's the iPhone made? Anybody know? China. By who? Foxconn. Foxconn turns out to be a Taiwanese company operating in China. That iconic glass screen, the first thing that I fell in love with when I saw it in 2007, co-designed by Apple engineers and courting glassware engineers. And what does the iPhone still have more of even than the cool Galaxy S9? Apps. And does Apple make apps? Almost none. Apps are made by bleary-eyed Abu Dhabi NYU students over cold pizza in a dormitory room someplace, okay? The Apple iPhone is a platform. It's a network, okay? It's made up of lots of different inputs across organizational boundaries. I have a brilliant colleague who's written a brilliant book, which like most brilliant books by my brilliant colleagues is impossible to read. So I'm going to tell you everything you need to know about that brilliant book. It's the title. 
And the title is a play on a brilliant book written by another brilliant academic that my friend from Oxford knows well, uh, which no one else has ever read either, but everybody knows the title. It's Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations. My friend Yohai's book is called The Wealth of Networks. And the argument is that in the middle decades of the 21st century, that value will be created by people, ideas, information, crossing organizational boundaries to create value. Now, these things are transforming the entire world. Why wouldn't we think they would transform the legal profession as well? And in fact, they are, right? We have a new normal. We have increasingly sophisticated clients with more access to information. And it's not just at the fancy corporate level. Go on all your legal websites. Go on things like uh, uh, Legal Zoom, okay? And they are demanding more transparency from us and asking us to take things that we used to have all nicely bundled together for our benefit, meaning the legal profession, and to unbundle those things across an increasingly global supply chain and to charge not for the input of how much it costs us to produce, but to the value of what people receive. And all of this is putting pressure on the legal profession's historic models. So our business model as lawyers is roughly been speaking to charge by the hour. And the more people who charge by the more hours, the more money we make. That's under pressure as anybody, including by sophisticated general counsels like Rupa, my student who's sitting in the back here, or our human capital model, that only lawyers can do what we call legal services. But I just put you up there 12 things, none of which are being done by, quote, lawyers or only by lawyers, and yet are delivering various kinds of legal services. Or our knowledge management model. I went to see your library here. It's gorgeous. But nobody was reading a book. You know, the books are like objet d'art. You know, they're there for, you know, they look beautiful. And everybody was on their computer, okay? That is the wave of the future, you know? Uh, or, most importantly, our educational model, which is, roughly speaking, to think like an 18th century, either common law or civil law lawyer. All these things are under pressure because of the big changes that I've talked about here. And it's creating the circumstances for what's called disruptive innovation. Now, Ruben and I were just talking about this and others here too. Disruptive innovation is a phrase coined by a business school academic named Clayton Christensen, a brilliant guy who wrote a book called The Innovator's Dilemma, which is maybe 20 years old now, and it's still the most important thing ever written on innovation. And here's what Christensen said. Disruptive innovation occurs when existing patterns of work, organization, and hierarchy are radically transformed in a relatively short space of time. That's just a fancy way, again, of saying things happen really fast, okay? And he says they often go through four steps. One, new competitors arrive, oftentimes at the bottom of the marketplace, selling inferior products that no one's ever heard of. What do you think the existing people at the top of the market do? Do they shake in their boots and they say, oh, disruptive innovation is coming? No, they ignore them. Or they say, thank goodness, somebody is doing that low-end stuff. We never wanted to do that anyway. We're better than that. And a lot of times that might be where it ends. But sometimes the people at the bottom actually are onto something and they begin to move up the value chain 
in which they suddenly now are capturing the middle of the market. And suddenly you can get a flip in which that old established way just looks old. And the new way, the old people don't know how to do. You have seen this story before, mostly in manufacturing, particularly in computer technology. Anybody know what digital electronic company or Wang Computers is? Nobody under my age knows. You know why? Because they don't exist anymore. But they were two of the most important computer companies in the world, making giant mainframe computers and making boatloads of money. They were replaced by people nobody had ever heard of, like Microsoft, like Apple, okay? Selling cheap, inferior products. Does anybody know where the original personal computers were sold? They were sold in the toy department. They were a novelty item. They had less computing power than your Texas instrument calculator. Anybody remember those? Okay. And now they're the dominant players in the market. The only people who survived from that mainframe era were IBM. And that's because IBM said, oh my goodness, we need to disrupt ourselves. So IBM, which made big giant mainframes, started a personal computing division only they didn't start it in Armagh, New York, which is, you know, their headquarters. They started it in Miami, Florida. And it didn't report to the head of the mainframe division. It reported directly to the board, the CEO on the board. Why? Because if it had reported to the mainframe division, guess what the mainframe division would have done? They would have killed it. Because who needs this stuff? You're supposed to be doing cool, big, giant, $500 million computers like us. Okay? And if you have any doubt about that, read Walter Isaacson's book about Steve Jobs. You know who owned all the original idea, intellectual property for the operating system, the personal computer, and the uh, digital printer? You got it. Xerox. Somebody's read the book. Yeah, he knows about innovation. Yes. It was invented in a cool lab that Xerox started in Silicon Valley back in the 1960s. And then they brought these things back to, you know, Fairfield, Connecticut or whatever Xerox is. And they said, look, what we've invented, we've invented all this cool stuff. What do you think the people at Xerox said? They said, what are you doing? You're making toys. We sent you out there to make better copy machines. Okay. And so they said the back. And so then they said, okay, I guess these are toys. So when a couple of scruffy haired kids came and said, gee, we hear you have some cool toys. Can we look at them? He said, sure, they're toys. Nobody cares. You know who those kids were? Steve Jobs and Bill Gates. The rest is history, okay? All right, and now IBM is at it again. Okay, some of you may know. How many people, I'm just curious, have heard of the Watson Project? Just put your hand up. Yeah, yeah, okay. It's getting much more recognized in part because they're making all those annoying TV commercials. I'll come back to that where they can teach Serena Williams how to play tennis and Bob Dylan how to write songs and it can make tacos. But the Watson Project is an artificial intelligence project, okay? And it has its roots a while ago. Many of you may remember that IBM made a computer that could beat Gary Kasparov, the world's chess champion in chess. It was called Deep Blue at the time. And IBM learned two things from that project. One, actually, it's not that hard to make a computer to beat somebody in chess. It takes a while, but chess is a totally bounded game, which means you make the first move 
And then, you know, all you need is enough computing power to be able to save every other move that could possibly be made, and you'll figure out eventually how to beat a human. The second thing they learned is if you have a machine that's beating a human, do not call it deep blue. Sounds like this is also the 50th anniversary of 2001, A Space Odyssey. You know, and it's like, Hal, you know, I can't open the door, Dave. Anyway, some people get that joke. Uh, so they went back at it. And then they developed a computer which they called Watson, which is named after IBM's founder, but it also sounds like friendly Dr. Watson with Sherlock Holmes, who could be scared of that. Well, then that computer beat the world Jeopardy champion. Now, in an American audience, everyone will know what Jeopardy is, but in an international audience, not everybody does. Jeopardy is a TV game show in which they give you various categories like movies or, or uh, uh, you know, explorers, or they can give you any kind of categories. And you, they give you the, they give you basically information and you have to guess what the answer is, okay? Yes, Alex Trebek. Okay, so somebody, <laughs> you could give this lecture here. I'll be here every Monday night. No, anyway. Uh, so um, here's the thing about this. Turns out to get a computer that could beat a human in jeopardy is hard. So they beat the guy who had been, who won so many times on Jeopardy, they made him retire because he won so much money. Why is it hard? Because it's ordinary language, okay? It's not ones and zeros. It's on any huge range of subjects. They could, they, you don't know what the categories are in advance. It's a learning model. So there's like a $20 question and then a $40 question, then a $60 question, all in the same category. And you have to be fast because people hit their buzzers within a second or two, okay? And when the computer beat the World Jeopardy champion, I had the head of the IBM Watson division along with Clayton Christensen at a conference in 2013, shortly after this happened. And he said to me, when we did this, my phone started ringing off the hook. And I said, with who? He said, cancer doctors. Now, my first reaction was, cancer doctors watch daytime game shows? But apparently so. My second reaction was, why do cancer doctors care if you have a computer who can beat the World Jeopardy champion? He said, here's what they said. If you could teach a computer to think like an in-game player, to read ordinary language like a sophisticated game player, and to develop probabilistic hypotheses to complex problems quickly, then maybe you can read all this stuff on the human genome project that's coming after me or everything that's being published in medical journals around the world and help me figure out what I'm doing as a doctor or a scientist. And it turns out that's been Watson's best use. Watson is now the loyal assistant to doctors doing diagnoses about symptoms and what kinds of disease this might be and discovering new medicines. And here's the thing. They're at it again, and so is everybody else. So some of you may have read that Google built a machine, artificial intelligence, that just beat the world's Go champion in Go. Anybody who's ever played Go knows it's the most complex game in the world. There are more moves possible in Go than there are atoms in the known universe. Okay, we're talking hugely complicated. 
And when it beat the world go champion, the most amazing thing about it was that they had a room full of go champions like this who were watching the machine play the world's greatest go champion. And when the computer made the move that turned out to be the winning move, every person in the room thought it was a mistake and the computer was going to lose. Why? Because the computer made a move that no human being had ever made before on this kind of strategy. How could it do that? Because the computer played itself in Go hundreds of millions of times. And it was learning as it played to develop a new strategy. That's what artificial intelligence is, okay? And here's the thing. Medicine might be more like Jeopardy or Go, right? With all these complexities we don't understand. Guess what's a little bit more like chess? Okay, law. It's a bounded game with a bounded set of materials, at least in substantial part. And law is ripe for disruption. Okay, law is one of the most conservative disciplines in the world. I like to say in my country that law is the only thing you cannot say anything new until you definitively prove someone said it before. That's called common law president. Then all the civil law people like David Snicker. And then I say, yeah, in civil law, you can't say anything new unless Napoleon said it, okay? It's a backward-looking discipline, all right? And it's also one of the most heavily regulated disciplines in the world. Only guess who's in charge of the regulation? Us. And how much incentive do we have to allow innovations that might put us out of business, okay? We control the education. We control the certification. We control the standards of practice, okay? And we've always had tight rules restraining competition. But guess what? That regulatory framework is now under considerable pressure starting in the UK where there's a set of regulatory reforms called the Clementi Reforms, the Legal Services Act, in which they have deregulated or allowed for new kinds of organizational forms of legal practice, like multidisciplinary practice, for example. You could have outside investment in law firms. You could even have publicly traded law firms in the UK now. And all of it is overseen not by lawyers, but by a government official who is a competition policy expert who has a whole different view about what the legal profession ought to look like and for whose benefit it should be regulated. Okay, that is changing the legal profession. So kind of here's what it looks like now. First, we see more and more law being integrated into other forms of discipline in the field I study most, in David studies, into corporate practice, into global business solutions. <clears throat> which is creating what I call the paradox of specialization. Meaning, lawyers are being pushed to become more and more specialized at an earlier and earlier age. But if we ask Ruba what the kind of problem she looks at, they're increasingly crossing not just legal specialties, but other domains of business, of finance, of technology. All right? There's a mismatch. Second, at least in my country, we have a mismatch of entry versus exit into the profession. It used to be, you know, you were a lawyer and you retired at, you know, 65 and you were dead at 68. Now, and we had a lot of people coming into the profession at the bottom end. If you look at the ratio of lawyers in their 50s to lawyers in their 30s, in 1970, that's what these numbers are here across. Actually, can I do, can you see the little arrow? Does it work? Yeah. So, um, there were 127 lawyers in their 30s for every 100 lawyers in their 50s, okay? 
Look what it was by 1985. It was almost three to one or two and a half to one. What happened? Huge number of women into the, entered the legal profession and a lot of law schools opened in the U.S. By 2005, it looked more like it did in 1970. And by 2020, it's going to look almost one to one. Why? Because people like me think 60 is the new 40. It's a lie, but that's what we think. Uh, and fewer younger people are going into law. And that's particularly true since the recession. Where, where's my little arrow? In the U.S., applications to law school are down by 40%. And that's true at the top law schools like NYU and Harvard. Although there's been lately an increase in the last couple of years, which is sometimes called the Trump bump, as people see that actually law might have some utility, that's a subject for another lecture. Um, and yes, law remains a human capital business. I don't think you're going to have robot lawyers anytime soon, but those humans better understand how to work with technology. As a friend of mine says, which would you rather pay for? A thousand dollar an hour lawyer who understands technology and how to use it or one who doesn't? Okay. And here's the thing. And here's the reference I promised you, Mohammed. I taught a course on uh, globalization and technology and law way back in 2000. I couldn't find anybody in the, in, the, in the legal profession who knew anything about it. There were hardly anybody in the business school world. I had to go to MIT and I found a guy who studied CAD CAM, meaning computer-aided design and computer-aided manufacture and its, and its effect on the architectural and engineering profession. And he started the class by saying something I've never forgotten. He said, you know, professionals think that technology will allow them to do what they already do just cheaper and faster. But in fact, what technology does is it redefines what it means to be a professional. So in architecture, it used to be, what did it mean to be an architect? You had to be able to draw straight lines and think in two-dimensional space. After CAD, who cares if you can draw straight lines? You need to draw conceptually. Look at Coolhouse or Gary. They, they don't even know what a straight line is. And you need to be able to think in three-dimensional space like a computer. That's a whole different kind of skill. That's the world that's coming to us, okay? And you ain't seen nothing yet. Sorry, that's slang for things are going to change a lot faster. Um, so remember, law is a lagging, not a leading indicator of change meaning it follows broader trends in the marketplace, in society, in the economy. So I wanted to understand what was happening in the economy. I went to my across-the-street neighbor. He runs Highland Capital. Uh, so where's my friend whose husband is a big venture capitalist here? Highland Capital is a big early-stage venture capital company. He's paid to think about these big trends. And here's the kind of stuff he says. First, we're entering into a, an age of digital Darwinism. Okay, what does that mean? If you looked at the average age of a Fortune 500 company, those are the top companies in the United States, in 1950, the average age was 60 years old. By 2020, it'll be 12 years old. I had the general counsel of Uber at Harvard Law School right before I got on the plane to leave. And he was saying, yeah, you know, we, we have our, you know, we have to think long term now. We're an established company. We want to be here 5, 10 or 20 years from now. I said, what? Okay, what happened to 50 years? What happened to 100 years? Nobody's thinking like that, okay? Huge change. And the people who are running these companies are increasingly young, 
not just even in relation to me, but think Mark Zuckerberg. Mark Zuckerberg started Facebook in 2004 in his dorm room, okay? He's not 30 years old yet, and he's been a billionaire of one of the leading companies in the world for almost 10 years. Just think about that, okay? And increasingly diverse. They are going to want different things. Second, generational change has only just begun. So we have millennials in the room, but those of you who are younger or students here, you know what they call you. They don't have quite a name. They call you Generation Z, like you're zombies or something like that. Uh, okay, millennials and Generation Z in the United States are going to be 50% of the workforce by 2024. I'm not talking 2034, 2040. I'm talking eight years from now, okay? And that actually... Wait, that's six years from now. Anyway, see, that's why I went to law school and didn't do math. Um, and in countries here where the population is younger, it's going to be even faster. And we know that people in this generation are attracted to different kinds of things. They want more control. They've grown up in the sharing economy, okay? And they're better educated than any generation ever. So this is from the U.S. In 2015... 39% of all millennials had a college degree. Now, when I was in college, that would probably have been in the 20s. And, you know, you don't have to go back much before it's 10%. If you want to know why people are worried about what's happening in Western countries, it's because you could have a college degree and it now looks much more like having a high school degree, okay? Uh, and 28% of all college students have had at least one line course. That's Three years old, I'm sure it's more like 40% now, okay? And postgraduate education is moving towards a more continuous executive education model. So Harvard Business School, already 40% of what it does is education of professionals. 60% is education of MBA students, basically recent college graduates. In three years, they want to flip that. They're going to have 60% be executive education, only 40%. Partly that's a money issue, but partly it's also an issue of when do people need education and what do they need to learn and how fast is the world moving? And that's partly because we're moving towards a gig economy, okay? Again, remote work has gone from 9% in 1998 to 37% have worked remotely. This is in the U.S., okay? 43% of Americans have used at least one on-demand service. That didn't surprise me. This shocked me. 29%, you can't make it work anymore. 29% have done work in the gig economy. It's an $800 billion piece of the economy. This is not a joke. This is not a novelty. This is not some little thing, okay? This is the way work is moving. When this guy did his presentation, the first slide he had, he's much cooler than me, he had pictures and stuff, I don't have pictures, uh, was a young black man in his 20s sitting on a mountaintop that looked like Machu Picchu with his computer out, and he said, that's the future of consulting, okay? He runs something called Catalan Consulting, which is an online platform consulting. It's the fastest growing consulting firm in the world, okay? But here's the thing. What is all this going to mean? So, how do you foster collaboration, innovation, and culture in an age of remote, transient, or gig work? How do we think about that, okay? How do we ensure 
you know, objective standards of quality, particularly in a field like law, where we protect public goods in a world that celebrates deregulation and creative destruction. You know, listen, tradition and stability continue to have hugely important roles for lawyers and for clients, right? And after all, as my friend uh, Dennis will talk about, it's why we call it the rule of law. That means it cannot be changing every day. It cannot be changing by creative destruction. Thomas Jefferson thought we should have a revolution every 20 years and overthrow that. That was a dumb idea. And there's a good reason why we don't think this is going to be the way we run our government. And yet, how do we have stability and continuity and a rule of law in a world that looks like this? And by the way, if you want people to become lawyers, they make long-term investments, oftentimes that are very expensive, particularly if they can't go to NYU Abu Dhabi, uh, and to get educated and to, un- it, they have to be able to make some payoff for that investment, otherwise the people aren't going to make it, okay? And how do we protect those people who lose in the gig economy with no pension funds, no safety net? How do we think about what's going to happen to all those Uber drivers? The reason why he said that It's because in 10 years, they don't want to have drivers. They want to be having autonomous vehicles. You know, that's the future. And yet all these people are investing in being Uber drivers. Okay? So, everybody know what Expedia is? It's one of those online travel services. Uh, So, I had, uh, uh, I was at a conference with a guy who runs Expedia. His name is Richard Barton. He also started something called Avo, which is an online legal platform. Okay? And he came and he said, I have three simple rules for the world, okay? Uh, you know, these tech guys are not wanting in, uh, you know, or in hubris, okay? So he said, well, here's my Barton's law of the world. One, what can be known will be known. Two, what can be rated will be rated. Three, what can be free will be free. Now, a lot of this depends upon what the meaning of can is, okay? Because if everything that could be free was free, Barton wouldn't be a billionaire. But directionally, we know that the pressure is towards this end of the spectrum, right? But that still leaves a whole bunch of questions about what these innovations are and what they will deliver. So right now, I think we're in a world in which we have too many hammers looking for nails. So what happens is somebody invents a cool technology and then they go around looking for ways to use that technology. But as we often know, that means that you're not actually necessarily producing the best solution for a real problem. You may be creating a problem that's in want of your solution. Second, everybody thinks we have lots of ratings. We have ratings for everything. And by the way, when you become a lawyer, there will be AVO rates lawyers. That's what they do. You don't have to ask her to rate you. They will rate you on their own. Okay. What is the rationale for those ratings? What do those ratings mean? And that's because I think we have, here's for the economists, we have too much Milton Friedman and not enough Oliver Williamson. What does that mean? We have too much thinking that the market will fix all goods. And you just ask them, they'll say the market will fix it. We don't need regulation. Well, how's that going, Facebook? How's that going for your privacy ratings, right? We have to understand that What happens in the marketplace is filtered through institutions, okay, including government institutions. And most of the technology people are too quick to equate everything that says professionalism with protectionism, okay? Now, there is protectionism, all right? But it's not all protectionism. 
Some of it is there for a reason. I had Maureen Dowd as a famous columnist in the U.S. She had this great column in which she said, you know, everybody's talking about thinking outside of the box. She said, yeah, that's nice. But sometimes the box is there for a reason. Okay, we built the box because there were things we wanted to protect inside the box. And in particular, in law, it's privileging a kind of efficiency understanding of law versus one that focuses on broader issues of identity, on community. How do we think about that? And there's a huge amount of conflation of access with access to justice and with quality. Okay, answering these questions are going to make us have to think really, really hard about what is going to change, what should change, and what should not change. Those are really hard questions. And to me, the place they're most likely to be answered is in places like this, which are trying to reinvent what the model of studying legal studies is. So, I don't have the answers, but luckily I can turn it over to two very smart people who can think about them. I can just say, I'm really honored to ask the questions at a place like Emily Abu Dhabi. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute.